Well, last week we started this new series, and the series, it's a one-word title. It's called Manna. Uh, if, uh, if we got a one-word title, we'll also, we'll, along with that, give you a one verse. That's kind of the foundational verse. And that is John chapter 6, verse 35. I mentioned to you last week that if uh, you, you walk into our kitchen on the backsplash, written in blue paint, uh, fired into some uh, tiles on that, uh, on that wall, you'll see John 635. It's kind of where we live our life. The center of our home is the kitchen. I bet you it's the same way at your house. Um, and when we have family dinners, my kids are there, and, um, you know, now we got grandkids coming, so they're there. My mom was there a couple weeks ago, so we had four generations around the kitchen. And uh, right in the center of the kitchen was John 635. Um, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's our central verse. Uh, when he says he is the bread of life, and in essence when he says he's the living water of life, He's not just talking about physical provision, although physical provision is involved in that. But he is the Lord of all of life. All of life. He sustains us. See, bread and water are what you need for sustenance to keep physical life going. But there's more to our lives than just the physical. Every aspect of life, Jesus is Lord of every aspect of life. Um, I'm just blanking. Every time this pops into my head, I lose this guy's name. He was the, uh, the prime minister of the Netherlands. Um, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Starts with a D. Uh, that's another guy. I know who you're thinking of. Anyway, I can't, I can't pull his name out. But he said this. He was a committed Christian. Before he became prime minister, he was, uh, it was, yeah, he was a pastor. Interesting career. Uh, so interesting, I can't forget it. I can't remember his name. Uh, but he basically said that Jesus says to every square inch of the world and life within it, he says, it is mine. Everything is his. He owns every square inch of life. He created it. It's our physical life. Uh, it's our health. It's, uh, it's our relationships. And sometimes they get broken. What do you need when they get broken? You need to be healed and you need sustenance. Uh, we have jobs. We have careers. We Deuteronomy 8.18, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. So did you work today? Were you able to work? Take it back to first causes. What's first cause? He gave you the power. He gave you the gifts. He gave you the health. He gave you certain aptitudes so that job in which you work and earn money, you could perform. It is he who gave you the power to make wealth. Because he is Lord of every area of life. He sustains us in every area of life. Um, 
So when we talk about manna and Jesus being the bread of life, this goes back to the Old Testament. And so what I'd like you to do tonight with me is let's go back to the historical account on when God gave them manna. Uh, if you go to Exodus chapter 16, um, Exodus 16, 14 is the Red Sea crossing. They're coming out of Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years. Exodus is really a, a, it's a fascinating book of history. Um, so they've been slaves for 400 years. They come out of the wilderness. Uh, they come out of Egypt. They find themselves in a situation at the Red Sea. God opens the Red Sea. He miraculously gets them through it. They come through on dry land. Uh, Pharaoh's army comes behind them. You know the story. Collapses on them. So God wipes out their enemies. Now they're going to go into the promised land. Um, it's not that far up to the promised land. The promised land is going to be, uh, God says, I'm going to give you cities you didn't build. I'm going to give you how. Now think about this. I'm going to give you cities you didn't build. These are slaves for 400 years. They have nothing. They have nothing. And then God raises up Moses. He leads them out by the power of God. They're going to go up to the promised land. He says to these slaves, I'm going to give you cities you didn't build. I'm going to give you houses. You didn't build. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a 30-year mortgage on a house. He said, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. This is Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to give you orchards you didn't plant. You're going to have all that fruit. Uh, I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't hewn. There's not a lot of rainfall in Israel. Uh, so if you go to Israel today, if you go to Megiddo, you can go to the cistern at Megiddo. And as it's, it's, it's hewn out of the rock, and, and, and it's underground. And, and so as rainfall comes off, they channel it into these granite cisterns. And when you, uh, and there are stairs. As I remember, there's like 248 stairs to the bottom of the cistern. And as you step into the first stair at Megiddo, the cistern, you know what you see? You see chisel marks in the granite. So some guy in years past said, you know, I think I will hewn a cistern out of solid granite rock. So he takes his um, modern device of an iron hammer, and he has this chisel, and he goes, boom. <coughs> and in about three weeks, it was done. Not quite. He didn't have a jackhammer. He's not doing this. He's, he's doing one shot at a time. 248, 298, I don't remember how many, but you walk down deep into the depths in this stairway and at a certain level you can see the water. Somebody did that. that that's work that would take years. God says, I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't hewn. So they were on their way to the promised land. They should have been up there in a matter of weeks. But you had an event that occurred. And i got to give you a little background. I'm reviewing what we said last week. At a certain point, as they were headed up to the promised land, they, God said, pick 12 men. And you can find this in Numbers 13. Pick 12 men, one from each tribe, each man a leader. 
and they were going to go on a reconnaissance mission. So they go up, and they're going to check out the land and the ites that are up there. And uh, they come back, and they give the report. They say it's an incredible land. Um, milk and honey, produce, it's just beyond belief. God's going to give it to us. But there's a problem. There are giants in the land. There was a little race of giants, Nephilim, and 10 of the 12 spies said, we can't take these giants. Two men said, no, we can. God will fight for us. The two men were who? Joshua and Caleb. We name our kids Joshua and Caleb. The 10 other spies, nobody knows their name. They were, all right, they were a bunch of yo-yos. We don't know their names. They had just seen God deliver them. Stop and think about this. They had just seen God deliver them by his power by sending 10 plagues on Egypt. They had just seen God open the Red Sea. They crossed on As they crossed, God would dry the land in front of them. So there was no mud on their sandals. They got to the other side. God enclosed the sea on their enemies. And these guys, just weeks later, are looking at these giants and saying, we can't take them. And not only are they saying, we can't take them. In fact, turn over to Numbers 13. I know I haven't read Exodus 16 yet, but hey, what the heck, huh? I had trouble getting out of high school. Um, look at Numbers 13. Uh, you see the 12 spies there at the beginning. Numbers 13, yeah. The 12 spies, you know, you just scan over it. They come back in verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they give the report. Um, 32. They gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. The land through which we've gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw are men of great size. There we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And watch this. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. That's interesting. See, they had a greater fear of men than they did of God, which made no sense in light of what they had just experienced. You know, Christianity is primarily about thinking. It's about thinking. It's about logic. It's about the facts. And if you just run the numbers on this thing, oh, there are giants in the land. All right, well, let's run the numbers. Let's look at the facts. You just had 10 plagues sent by the power of God on your behalf. He just opens the Red Sea. You cross on dry land. He encloses on your enemies. Let's add all that up, whatever it comes out to. And now you're telling me you're facing this tribe of giants and you think God can't take these guys for you? That makes no sense. Is that not irrational? Is that not illogical? Yeah, it is. See, those things that God does on our behalf are designed to increase our faith and to increase our trust in the living God for the next thing that comes around the corner that threatens us and for which we need to trust Him to deliver us. This is how the Christian life works. Not only did the ten spies not believe, but look what happens in 14. They affect the people. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Why? Because of what the ten spies had told them, who wouldn't trust God. These giants are going to wipe us out. Now watch how this epidemic of unbelief sweeps through the people. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, watch how irrational the whole congregation becomes. 
because of the example of the ten leaders. This is why, as leaders, we've got to watch our hearts and our spirits and our attitudes. Because, you see, we set the pace. Somebody's watching you. Somebody is watching me. Leaders have impacts. Husbands have impacts. Fathers have impacts. Grandpas, I don't care who you are. These ten had impact, but it was negative. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices, cried. The people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is God bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? (coughs) Excuse me. Our wives and little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said one to another, Let us call a congregational meeting and appoint a leader and return to Egypt. I threw the congregational meeting in there just for... Just, just for fun. So you see what happens? This plague of unbelief and irrationality. Does this make any sense? Wait a minute. God brought you out. God delivered you ten plagues. He sent you through the Red Sea. And God's brought you out here to have your wives and kids killed? Really? That makes no sense. Somebody is not thinking. Right? They're grumbling. They're complaining. Okay. Now... Let's go to Exodus. Exodus 16. We're going to get the account of the manna. Because of the unbelief, are you guys still with me here? Because of the unbelief of the ten, God says you're not going to go directly into the promised land, but you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, you think I'm going to plunder your kids and allow them to die? Uh, everyone over 20 is going to wander, and until that generation dies off, you're not going to go into the land. What I'm going to do is, y- you think that I can't take care of your kids? Because of that, you're all going to die, and you're not going to go into the land. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to let your kids go into the land. And I'm going to bless them beyond their wildest dreams. So they've got to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, now you've got 2 million men, women, and children. And as we said last week, they're in this wilderness. Think of this, two million of them. Uh, And they're in this wilderness, and uh, they're going to wander. Now, here's the deal. They're in a wilderness, and um, how do you supply? How do you supply two million men, women, and children? See, this is an issue that is forefront on the forefront of their mind because if you look at Exodus 16, you see them start to grumble again. And their unbelief begins to foment to the surface. So you've got to watch your heart. You've got to watch the little things. You've got to watch against complaining against God. You've got to watch grumbling against God. You've got to watch putting God in the docket and cross-examining God? Because that's really kind of ludicrous, isn't it? Because he's God, and we're a bunch of peons. What do we know? We don't know anything. So you really got to watch your heart so that we don't become like these people. Now watch this. 16. Um, Oh, by the way, remember Jesus said he was the bread and Jesus said he was the water? 
just back up real quick to 1522. When they come out of the Red Sea, Moses, 1522, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. You need water for two million men, women, and children. So what happens? Then they came to Merah. They could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. There was water, but it was bitter water. They couldn't drink it. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Well, Jesus is the bread of life, and Jesus is the source of water. And he knows that you've got to have the essentials to survive. So once again, they start grumbling immediately because they, they're normal. See, they had plenty of water in Egypt. They had plenty of food in Egypt. Watch what God does. Uh, Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree. He threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. That's the power of God. Because Jesus is God, and Jesus is the bread of life. And he owns all of life. It's just like in John 6, as we said last week, it begins where he says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. In John 6, at the beginning, you got the feeding of the 5,000, which is really the feeding of the 20,000, because there were 5,000 men. And when you add up the wife and kids, you had probably 20,000 people. And they didn't have enough. What did they have? Five loaves and two fish? I mean, some of you guys ate more at lunch than that. You see, if you went to a buffet somewhere, you can't feed 20 men with five loaves and two fish. Fishes, whatever it is. Uh, two trout, whatever the heck. I don't know what it is. Uh, but five loaves, two. You can't feed 20 guys. He fed 20,000. Why? Because he is the Lord of all of life. All of it. Okay, now watch this. So he gives them water in 16. Then in 15. Then in 16, they're setting out. The date is set in verse 1. The uh, whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled again against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that, here we go again, Oh, would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Now, hold on a second. For 400 years, what were they doing in Egypt in regard to the Lord? Get us out of here. Get us out of here. Get us out of here. They just wanted out. Well, he got them out. But see, now they're having to trust God in the wilderness for daily provision, and they're used to having some kind of normal paycheck, cash flow, um, groceries. That, see, they were slaves in Egypt, but they were well fed and they were well nourished. Pharaoh made sure of that because he wanted them to have physical strength because they were the economic engine of the entire economy. So they had the essentials of life. But now they're looking back because they're in the wilderness and now they're actually having to trust God. Oh gosh, we, we were better off in Egypt, really. You complained for 400 years and now you're complaining out here. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the hand of Egypt. When we sit by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Once again, you see the irrationality, you see the insanity. Now we've got to watch our hearts that we don't start accusing God. 
What, why? Because the Lord gives and the Lord, what? Takes away. Sometimes God takes away because there's a lesson that we need to learn. And sometimes he takes away and sometimes he denies because he intends a greater mercy after we've learned a lesson. You say, but you've got to learn to trust him. Okay. All right. So the people are grumbling. Because they're in the wilderness. Uh, if you'd look at verse 11 of Exodus 16. See, here's what they're saying. Because they realize the situation. We had plenty to eat, but we got two million of us. And not only do we constantly need water, but we're going to constantly need food. And all the supply lines are cut off. Where are we going to get the... Where are we going to get the food. I mean, they weren't stupid. And, and not only did they not have food, they didn't have access because the land, I think it's Jeremiah 2.2, talks about that land. It couldn't even be sown. And they didn't have time to sow it because they had to move. They were on the move, but that land wouldn't even sustain agriculture. Um, can I say this to you? God put, this, put them in the wilderness on purpose to show him his complete and total adequacy and ability to provide for them. That's why he put them in the wilderness. That he could be trusted with everything they needed in life. Because all supply lines are cut off. Um, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel speak to them, saying... At twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be fed with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. It's true there are no supply lines, but see, you don't know me. Because I've already got this worked out and I've already got it figured out. At night, there will be meat, a fresh supply every night. In the morning, there will be bread every morning. And I will do this every day that you're here. And they would be there for 40 years. And see, once again, what was the purpose of this? You shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13. So it came about in the evening, the quails came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. So the quails came every night. Why? Because God runs the animal kingdom. He invented it. When you watch the National Geographic Channel and all this, did you ever see that? You know, nature, nature. Oh, how amazing. And it's just incredible how nature is just this and that. And it is amazing. It is incredible. Do they ever give glory to God? Well, we can't do that. Do you ever see that thing on the penguins? That was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. These penguins, you just got to go see it. They, they, they swim out of the Bering Sea or somewhere. I mean, I don't know. Then they, they march for like, you know, 300 miles. And it's just this brutal unbelievable North Pole wind and everything. and they all cluster together and they have their babies and then the, the fathers go trekking all the way down and get the food and then they trek back and, and you're looking at this and you go this is unbelievable and what they're doing is then they say the wonder of the the wonder of the penguins how about glory to God who instituted this and sustains a little baby penguins. 
and put the instinct in the parents and the nurturing and you just marvel at it. Read Psalm 65 sometime about God's sovereignty over the creation. He, He sends the rain on the mountains. It comes down the streams. It waters the crops. This is is how we live. This is how we're sustained. You go back to first causes. So at night, he's going to send the quail. In the morning, there will be bread. Look at verse um, 13. It came out in the evening. The quails came up, covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, this is wild. Isn't this wild? When the layer of dew evaporated, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is this? They didn't know what it was. They'd never seen it. Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Why? Because he's the bread of life. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much, some gathered little. When they measured it out with the omer, he who gathered much had no excess. He who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. That's supernatural. And see, we worry about our cash flow. Don't we? Because we're men and we're responsible to provide for our families. But see, ultimately, God's your banker. Ultimately, he's your banker. He controls your excess. Uh, He commands your deficit. He's in charge of it all. And somehow, just like he kept them going, somehow he's kept you going. I mean, you're here tonight, aren't you? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, but I wish I had a little more. Well, okay. I get get that. But he's going to give you what you need. Uh, By the way, Bruce Waltke, in his Old Testament um, writings on this chapter, here's his phrase for this. He calls this, Having nothing, yet lacking nothing. That's brilliant. Having nothing, and some of you guys are saying, yeah, that's me. Okay, having nothing, yet you're lacking nothing. Give us this day our, what? Daily bread. Did you get daily bread today? Well, you look like you did. (laughs) Me too. Okay. 19, Moses said to them, let no man leave it until the morning. But, of course, they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and became foul. Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. So they couldn't store it up. Uh, Except on the sixth day, 29. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So on the sixth day, the next day was going to be the Sabbath, God would give them double to get them through the next day where it wouldn't show up. But this time, the excess, although they had excess, it wouldn't spoil because God's sovereign over it all. 
because he's the Lord of life. Verse 31, the house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white. And its taste was like wafers and honey. And for 40 years, with all supply lines cut off, the normal supply lines of life dried up, cut off, God took care of them daily. What they needed for the morning, they had for the morning. They didn't have enough to get through the night. Ah, but at night, here he comes again, and he never missed. Never. Never. This reminds me of James 1. James 1, verse 2 says, Count it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what I want to say off that verse, and I want to say something about the wilderness. When we come to know the Lord, um, you can expect after you come to know the Lord, and after he saves you from your sin, gives you a new heart, brings you into his eternal family, uh, you will encounter at some point in your life, he will put you in the wilderness. Yes, he will. That's what he does with his men. It'll probably happen to you more than once in your life. Say, he'll put me in the wilderness. Yeah, he will. Why would he put me in the wilderness? Because that's where God does his heart surgery. That's where God takes men and moves them from immaturity to maturity. Uh, That's where he does his deepest work. That's where he teaches us the essential lessons of life. That's where he makes his men. Is not in prosperity, but in adversity. Uh, So you will find yourself in some kind of wilderness. They found themselves in the wilderness. James says, count it joy when you're, or think it is joy. He doesn't mean jump up and down, you know, experience it as joy. Think it is joy. Think biblically what's going on in your life. Think it is joy when you encounter various trials, knowing, there's your mind again, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. All right, now watch this. In James 1, you have the word trial. When God puts us in some kind of wilderness, and once again in life, there are different kinds of wildernesses. There's a physical wilderness. Um, we, when we're young, we have health. We thank God for our health. And we always think we're going to have health. But we get older, we get miles on the tires, and stuff starts breaking down a little bit. It's just, it's just the routine. It's just how life works. Um, nobody wants to lose their health, but it happens. Uh, so sometimes we find ourselves... I was swimming the other day at, at, at Lifetime, and there was a young boy about eight. He just, a little guy running around having fun. And uh, I heard his dad say something to him, and I looked over, and his dad was over there in a, in a wheelchair. Young, young guy, probably mid-30s. And was talking to his son, and I was trying to figure out, and I, I, and I don't know, I don't know. It, I was just wondering if he didn't have Lou Gehrig's disease. It often hits guys about that age. 
and he was in the sun, and he was over in the shade under an umbrella, and, and covered up, and had his hat and his towel on, because he really, you know, but he could talk. He hadn't lost that yet. That just broke my heart. What a sadness. Uh, sometimes we're in physical wildernesses. Sometimes we're in relational wildernesses. And uh, sometimes you're in a job wilderness. You see, where you had a good job and suddenly you're in the wilderness. Uh, when you're in any kind of wilderness, it's a trial. And when you're in any kind of wilderness, it is also a test. Okay? What does James say? Think it is joy when you encounter, what's this, various what? Trials. Uh, we, we don't all have the same trials. Different kinds of trials. All kinds of trials. Count it, uh, think it is joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith See, this is what happens in the wilderness. If you go back to Exodus 16 and look at verse 4, when the people were saying, you know, God's going to abandon us and our kids are going to starve to death, all this nonsense. 16.4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out every day and gather a day's portion. Watch this. That I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Hmm. My friend Pat Morley uh, made an observation. He, he was talking about the trials of life. Uh, and, and we ask, when we get into these wilderness situations, a wilderness to me is a place of trial and it's a place of testing. Now, why are we in the wilderness? And I, I like Pat's insight. He said there were three reasons we find ourselves in the wilderness. Uh, the first one is this. We're in the wilderness for disobedience. If you disobey God, and by the way, they were in the wilderness because of disobedience. The, the ten leaders influenced them, and they bought that panic, and they bought that unbelief from relating against God, and it just spread through the camp, and they started accusing God of all kinds of things that were not true. They were flat-out disobedient to the power of God that had been demonstrated on their behalf 11 different concrete times, and they refused to give him glory. That's flat-out disobedience, is it not? And we have all done it, every one of us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. Yeah, we've done it just like they did it. All right, so one reason that you may be in the wilderness is your own disobedience. You just went ahead and did it anyway. Here's the second reason you could be in the wilderness. Because of obedience. You say, wait a minute, you're confusing me. Well, you, there are different reasons people go into the wilderness. There are different reasons. If you look at 1 Peter 4, you'll find, in fact, flip over to 1 Peter 4 with me. Say, man, this is kind of strange. Yes, it is. That's because God works strangely. Is that not right? Let me ask you something about Job. Was Job afflicted because he was disobedient? No, he was afflicted because of what? Obedience. There's no one like him. There's no one like this guy. He's unbelievable in his faith and obedience to the Lord. If you read the opening verses. 
Why was he afflicted? Why was he in the desert? Why was he in the wilderness? Because of obedience. If you look at, uh, is it 1 Peter 4? I think it is. Give me a second here. G give me, uh, I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head. Give me a second. Yeah. Um, look at uh, 12. Uh, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Look at 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Let me tell you something, guys. We know that um, there's going to be more and more persecution among, for Christians in this country. We already see it coming. We already see it coming. You have to be blind to not see it. So we know it's on its way. All right? It's here and it's going to increase. All right? If you were reviled for the name of Christ, you were blessed. If you were reviled, yeah, if you're persecuted, if you're afflicted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And why? See, that's a trial. That's a wilderness. That's a testing. I know guys who have lost jobs because they felt like in conscience they were asked to uh, compromise a biblical principle and in good conscience before Christ they couldn't do it and they lost the job and were fired. Well, they were obedient and they find themselves in a wilderness. So it can be because of disobedience, it can become because of um, obedience. By the way, look at 19. Therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God should entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. He knows what's going on. He sees your obedience. And let me tell you something. God said... In the Old Testament, he said, he who honors me, him will I honor. He'll make a way for you. He'll take care of you. You just watch him do it. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. Um, the eye of the Lord roams to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. Okay. Uh, third reason you could be in the wilderness uh, is for no apparent reason. <laughs> I love that. Morley says that. And we all, and, and is that not true? Sometimes you don't have a clue. Lord, what have I done wrong? I mean, show, listen, if you've done something wrong, he'll show you. He'll let you know. But sometimes you haven't done anything wrong. Well, and, and I, you just don't know. You're like Job in Job 23. Let's flip over to Job 23. But see, we're going to find ourselves in the wilderness. All supply lines are cut off. Nobody wants to be there, but it's amazing how often God's men are there. Uh, and it puzzles us. If you can't, if it's not clear, we get puzzled. And we say, Lord, what are you doing? Why do you have me here? I, I mean... I, Watch, I love this. I, I just, I, the Bible is so real. 23 verse 1, Job says, His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him, and I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would talk to the Lord and, and tell him, Lord, this and this, and I, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. And God knows it doesn't make sense to us. As a father, as you are raising your children, is it not true that at times you have to take steps with your kids and they absolutely don't get what you're doing? 
Absolutely. Do you have to stay the course because it's for their best, even though they cannot comprehend and they question you and they wonder if you... Yeah. Because see, you're the father. And you know things they have absolutely not a clue about. Well, that's true of us. We're pretty average guys. What about our perfect father? See? Okay. Look at verse 8. Maybe you can relate to this at times in your life. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I mean, I I move ahead and I can't even see him. I, I feel like he's abandoned me. Look at the next one. I go backward, but I can't perceive him. I can't see him anywhere in my life. Nine, when he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right. I cannot see him. In other words, Job is saying, I am totally and thoroughly confused and flummoxed about what's going on in my life. Where is the Lord? You ever been there? If you've been in a wilderness, you've been there. But watch this. Verse 10. He doesn't complain. He doesn't grumble. Watch this. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as what? Gold. Look at, look at, uh, so what do you do? You just hold fast and you keep following the shepherd. Look at verse 11. See, if you're confused, it's okay to be confused, but keep following Christ. Look at this. My foot has held fast to his path. I'm not going the path of rumbling. I'm not going the path of complaining. Just follow him. Okay? I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. Watch this. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. What's he talking about? Scripture. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's scripture. He's living off the word of God. Verse 13. He is unique who can turn him. What his soul desires, that he does. Watch this. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. What's he doing? He's entrusting his soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right, even though for the moment he's in the wilderness and he's under trial and he's being tested. Ah, but when he has tried me, I shall come forth as what? Will you always be in the wilderness? No. Don't you love this stuff? See, God explains life to us. I'm just nodding off. (laughs) I'm just kind of calibrating here, figuring out how I'm doing. Okay. Um, While we're in Job, go to Job 14. 14 14.1. This is a true statement. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. (laughs) Put that on your refrigerator. (laughs) 
But isn't it true? Is it not true the older we get, the more apparent to us that how life is just a wisp? When we're, when we're young, life is kind of slow. Time goes by slowly when we're young. I've mentioned this before. When I was a little guy, from Thanksgiving to Christmas was like four months. Right? Remember that? My gosh, it took forever. And now Thanksgiving to Christmas? I mean, it's about 72 hours. Because the older we get, the faster it's going by. Look at verse 5. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. And his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. You know what that means? God's put boundaries on your lifespan. Your conception, your birth, and your, and your death has already been set by God. Hebrews says it's appointed for a man once to die. But in the midst of that, God has a plan and God has a purpose. Ephesians 2.10, I'll start at 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourself is his gift of God, not a result of works that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, not good works to be saved. You were saved by grace in verse 8. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Before the foundations of the world, God had a plan for your life. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And when you've finished your work, you know what happens? You die. And you're promoted. Because you finished your work. To die is gain. You don't have to fear death. Jesus beat death. Okay, it's promotion. You don't want to mess it. And you won't. Okay? Neither will I. Okay. His plan includes, okay, let me wrap this up. His plan includes for each man some time in the wilderness. It's not forever. There are seasons in the wilderness where we learn lessons, where he does deep heart surgery, where we learn lessons in the wilderness we never learn in prosperity. Okay? When you're in the wilderness and you're tested and you're tried and you learn lessons, He is equipping you and giving you what you need and building spiritual muscle for the next season of refreshment in your life and how he wants to use you. And you just got to trust him with your life. But in the wilderness, I want to say this. When you find yourself in the wilderness, you will find yourself often alone. You will find yourself often isolated. And you will find yourself in the wilderness in a trial. You will find yourself in the wilderness When you are tested, you will find yourself in a situation where the normal supply lines of life are cut off. And nobody wants to be there. But when you are in the wilderness and the normal supply lines are cut off, what you are going to find out is that Jesus is the bread of life and that Jesus is the manna. How do we define manna? Last week, we said manna is not just physical provision. It's definitely that. Because you got to have food to feed your family. you got to have water. you got to have the essentials of life to keep the electricity. So we got to have physical sustenance from God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's a blanket promise. Okay? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Both those references are out of Matthew chapter 6. Your father knows that you need these things before you ask him. That's out of Matthew 6. Jesus said, don't worry about your life. Actually, he said, for this reason, don't worry about your life. That's all in Matthew 6. And it all goes back to the father who's got his eye on his people. Okay? He has made covenant promises he cannot and will not break. He will give you daily sustenance. He will give you manna. But manna is not just physical provision. Manna is any provision of God in any area of your life at the right time. Okay. I'm going to talk about myself for a minute. Just because I'm a narcissist. Uh, and I get a kick out of it. I, I, I struggle sometimes about giving personal illustrations, but I'm going to do it. Because you see, guys, the reason... I, I, I want to share some of this stuff with you because for all of us, it's just not knowing this stuff. It's, it's living it. He tests us. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because teachers incur a stricter judgment. So he's going to test us. It's just how it works. And I was thinking today about the first two wildernesses I really hit in my adult life. After I hit some before this, but I'm talking about after I met Mary and we got married. The first wilderness I hit, I was, um, I was in my early 30s, 32. And I had... Pastored a, I was a rookie. I, I pastored a church at the age of 28, small little church in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, you know, the Bible Belt. <laughs> and there were about, I think there were 58 people there the first Sunday. It struggled for a long time. But the Lord began to work and we began to have some growth. I was young, I was a rookie. I didn't know much. I didn't, honestly, I didn't. My gifts really didn't fit that situation. I thought they did, but they didn't. And, and I, I overworked, and I was overly ambitious, and I, wasn't, I didn't really spend time in prayer, and I was going 24-7, and I was trying to build the kingdom of God. <laughs> it was kind of nuts. It was crazy. It was nuts. I was just a young guy. I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I went so hard for so long, and I, I tend to do this with my personality. I just go until I hit a wall. And after about two and a half years, I just I lost all motivation. I felt guilty for taking their money. Long story short, it was stupid. I resigned because I didn't feel like I could, I could do the job. And nothing, I mean, the church was growing, but I felt like a failure. And I had counsel, no, don't leave. Stay where you are. I didn't listen. And I thought, well, someone else will pick me up and hire me. I interviewed with seven churches and all just said thanks, but no thanks. And man, I put our family in the wilderness. And this went on for a year, but there was a little church that kept calling me. And the average age of that congregation was between 70 and 80 years old. They were old-time fundamentalist Baptist that I wanted nothing to do with. They had the legal, they were sweet people. They loved the Lord. I knew the church it was not too far from where I was pastoring. They were sweet people. They were the only ones that kept calling me. And long story short, God forced me to go there. In fact, one of the, and they knew it. They, they were very gracious. 
And they took me, when I walked in that first Sunday, one of the ushers said, did you come by car or by whale? The guy was about 80 years old, but he hadn't lost a thing mentally. He knew, we got a young rookie here. Um, I had had kind of a thriving young church. I'd walked away from it. I'd been disobedient. And I was in a little tiny church, and I knew it would never grow. And I went into a depression. It took me two and a half years. I mean, I w- I've told you about this. I went downhill fast. I was crying a lot. Finally, Mary said to me, Steve, you got to go talk to Sonny. All right. I was in the wilderness, and here's my first piece of manna with Sonny Arnold. Because Sonny was a Christian counselor. And I went to see him because I was crying all the time. And you know what the Lord did for me through Sonny? Sonny was a timely provision. He explained depression to me, and I, I didn't know a thing about it. He walked me through it. He said it'll probably be a couple years. Um, uh, he said AIDS is immune deficiency you've got emotional deficiency you've broken down and the normal stresses of life just put you on your back it'll take you two years to build up well all I knew that I was in the wilderness and I thought God would never use me you see can I say this to you in the sovereignty of God but he knew, he knew the way I was going to take. See, I thought I was finished at 32. Did I know that over the next 30 years, I would do maybe 600 men's conferences? Are you, I, I had no clue. And usually at one of those conferences, I run into one guy who's in deep depression. And the manna that Sonny Arnold was to me the timely provision of God for me in my emotional life because Jesus is Lord of my whole life. I take that same manna and I give it to that guy who thinks there's nobody in the world that can understand what he's going through. That has happened to me hundreds of times. I look back and I say it was good for me that I was afflicted. Um... Right after I went to that church, I had already I'd signed up previously for a course at Talbot Seminary, a doctrinal course, a doctoral course, and I'd paid the money, so I was going to go, and I went down there for three days, and I, and I really wasn't looking forward to it, because the next weekend I had my first leadership with this church, with these fine men, older men, but we were going to have to make some changes, and I was, I'd lost all my confidence, and I was freaked out. I'd been very, very confident, but I just lost it which was good. I needed to. And I was just, I was up at night. I couldn't think, what am I going to say to these guys? I didn't have anything to say to them at at this retreat coming up on the weekend. And I had to go to LA for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And I walk in and Larry DeWitt's there. I don't even know who Larry DeWitt is, but he's a pastor, has a church in Southern California. And he said, well, guys, let me tell you about my ministry and all this. And I have this church and growing, blowing church. But he said, you know, most people don't know that when I came to this church, the average age was between 70 and 80. It was a very uh, staunch church. It was very, he was describing my church. And he said, what I'd like to do is, I'm going to take a little different direction. 
What I'd like to do is talk with you about leadership principles to implement change in the right way that honors God and brings people along in an honoring way to the Lord. For three days, you know what God did? He just handed me stuff. He just handed me stuff. And he just handed me stuff. It was manna. So what did I do that weekend? I went up there. Larry had hound downs. They said, hey, guys, can I share with you some stuff I learned this week? Boom, 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 boom. I didn't have a clue. He gave me manna. It was a time. There is such a thing as manna for your leadership. If you don't have what you need, ask him. And let him give you a timely provision. Has he ever done something like this for you? Yes, he has. This is what he does. He saves us. So I had emotional manna. I had leadership manna. Oh, by the way, the first thing I did, I had a job. I had job manna because a year I was out of work. Nobody wanted me. Job manna. Was it the job I wanted? No. Was it the job I needed? Yes. Those people were kind and gracious to me and accepted me and loved me when I had nothing in my tank. They were godly people. He gave me manna when he gave me that job because I've been driving a truck for 12 months. Oh, and a few months after that, after we had the leadership retreat, and we're kind of following the little thing that I came up with and all my leadership wisdom that I got plagiarized from Larry DeWitt. Things are going along well, and then we have some profs come from Dallas Seminary because they come out every summer to Mount Hermon for the conference, and there are four or five churches in the Bay Area, and these profs, there's a circuit that week, and they go to this church, to this church, church, and they speak at Mount Hermon, and they all rotate. Well, we were in the mix, and so we got these profs coming, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I meet these profs, and Dr. Campbell, who was the president, said, hey, Steve, you ought to get involved in our doctor ministry program, and I said, oh, Wow. He said, yeah, you'd, you'd fly in a couple times a week, and, you know, it's, love to have you. Dr. Reed will be here tomorrow night. He's the head of it. And, and, and Mary said, Steve, I think that'd be great for you because you don't have a lot to do here. Because I didn't have a lot to do. <laughs> because I didn't do any counseling. Because if you're 80 years old and in a bad marriage, you're not coming in for counseling. <laughs> right? I mean, you're just going to buy a TV and put it in the bedroom. And I really, I didn't have much to do. And I said, well, gosh, I mean, I, I don't think I could. And, and so I went to the guys on the board, and I said, hey, can I mention something to you, these older gentlemen? And I told them about it, and they go, oh, Steve, that'd be great. You ought to do that. I said, really? They go, oh, that'd be wonderful. Because some of the stuff you learn there, you could share with us. I said, yeah. They said, you ought to do that. Why don't you go ahead and apply, and we'll pay for it. Oh. <laughs> they paid for my doctoral work. Can you believe that? And some of those core courses were brutal, absolutely brutal. I had one course. I had to read 22 books and write 11 papers for one course. And I couldn't have done it in a regular situation. But God put me in a situation where I had time. You know what that was? That was career manna. It was the right provision at the right time. Now, I'm out of time, but can I just briefly tell you the next wilderness? Okay? Because, you see, I'm telling you guys, this is how God works. I'm saying this to encourage you. He'll make a way for you.
in ways you can never imagine, in ways you can... Now, to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we ever ask or think. I'm getting a call, and I determined I'll never leave this church because I, I, I bolted from the other church, and unless it's so crystal clear, long story short, that time came to an end. We, we went to another ministry, and it, it just was, the, it was timely, and I had healed up from the depression. Um, after a year there, and it just looked like it was just going to be wonderful. And it was for a year, and then it blew up. And there was misunderstanding among the leadership. And I want to say this, good men, godly men. But there was misunderstanding, we misunderstood each other. And it got, it got difficult. Um, I was going to write my, doc- I'd finished my coursework, I was going to write my doctoral dissertation on our new ministry and this new model for ministry. I was real excited. And two weeks before I was going to declare it before the academic committee at Dallas, it blew up in my face. And that week, I was speaking with Mary at a marriage conference. And when I did the session for the men, just the men only, afterwards, and this had never happened to me before, the first guy, I spoke on spiritual leadership as a husband and father. A guy came up to me and said, what have you written on this? No one had ever asked me that in my life. I said, nothing. He goes, oh, okay. Is there anything out there? I said, no. This is 1987. Nothing's been written yet. I didn't say that, but it was the case. Nobody wrote stuff like that back then. The next guy came up to me. What have you written on this? The next guy came up. What have you written on this? The next guy. Ten, between 10 and 15 guys asked me, what have you written on this subject? I'd never written anything. No one had ever asked me that. And on the plane home, see, I had to come up with a new topic for my dissertation because the other one blew up in my face. And as I talked to Mary, we looked at each other and said, well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Why don't I write about men? Did I know God was going to move me in the men's ministry? I didn't have a clue. I'm just trying to cover my tail academically. So I get back. We got chaos. I got a small group, four guys I meet with. And I said, hey, guys, I got to go down to the seminary. I get this idea uh, about doing a thing on men. Would you pray for me? They said, yeah, we'll pray. And I go down. I meet with Dr. Reed. And I tell him the idea. And he goes, hey, this is great. This is great. Steve, you know what you ought to do? You know what you ought to do? You ought to research a 1,000 men around the country. You got to pull them. You got to ask questions about this and this and this and do this original research. I said, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, you can hire a firm to help you do this. I said, hire a firm? That's legal? He goes, yeah, it is because they have the computers and back then nobody had. Now there's an app on your phone you can do it. But back then there was nothing. And I said, how much does that cost? He said, about $15,000. I said, I can't do that. He said, well, think about it. Maybe, maybe the Lord will do something. I get back the next week. My group and, and my church thing's in chaos, but I got my small group. And they don't know anything about what's going on. Except I'd been down to the seminary. And they said, how'd that go? And I said, well, it went well. They liked the topic, but they want me to do this $15,000 thing, and I don't have the money. So I'm not going to do it. On the way out, one of the guys waiting around, he goes, hey, Steve, you need to do that thing. I said, yeah, I know, but it's, you know. I, I, I'm, he said, no, you really do it. He said, you know David such and such? I go, yeah. Who used to be George Gallup's right-hand man? I go, yeah. You know, he's in town. He has his own firm. I said, I heard that. He said, call him. I said, I can't call him. I, he goes, you don't understand. I'll write the check. Call him. I called him. He wrote the check. That became my doctoral dissertation, which is about that thick on men. Did I know I was going to be in men's ministry? No. 
Oh, by the way, at the church, we got crossways. We had to bring in an arbitrator to smooth it. You know what we worked out? We had a board meeting, and they said, here's what we decided, Steve. You preach on Sundays, but don't come into the office during the week. I said, what? Don't come into the office. We don't want you infiltrating anybody. I was shocked. I said, so you want me to preach but not come in? Yeah. Well, what am I going to do? Aren't you working on that thing at Dallas, that academic thing? Yeah, just write that. They paid me to do my research on men. They paid me. It was manna, and I didn't even know it. It took me a year to do that. Then when I finished that, a publisher said, Hey, Steve, that ought to be a book. I want you to do a book. I went in and talked to him, and I said, Hey, this publisher wants me to do it. Yeah, yeah, write the book. Just write the book. <laughs> they paid me to write Point Man upstairs in my bedroom under house arrest. And, and I, would, I worked on that book, and I said, Lord, let me finish this before they fire me. And I finished it, and three weeks later, they let me go. Now, I want to say this. They are good men. They were godly men. Later, we, we resolved our issues. The key guy and I resolved, and we laughed about the providence of God. When I met him years later at Charlotte Promise Keepers with 70,000 men, and he said, Steve, I prayed for six months I'd run into you here because I wanted to apologize. And I said, I need to apologize. And we went like this, and we both laughed at how God worked. You see, I said, if you guys hadn't let me go, I wouldn't be in men's ministry. Do you see the, do you see the timely provision of God? God works sovereignly, God works strangely, and God works slowly, but he works, and I don't care where you are, and I don't care what wilderness you're in, he will give you a timely supply of manna to get you through. When my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. And God is honored. So trust him. Thank you, Father, for the wilderness days and what we learn and the provision that we see you provide for us in every level of life. Physically, financially, job, career, relationally. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.